0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Glad to see so many of you out tonight. And uh, I'm really excited to uh, introduce to you our speaker for the evening. Um, There's very few champions of truth left. I'll put it this way, there's very few, it seems, expository Bible teachers left. And um, our uh, speaker tonight is one of those uh, in spades. Uh, Dr. David Jeremiah is the senior pastor at Shadow Mountain Community Church in El Cajon, California, in the San Diego area. I've had the privilege of being there on a few occasions, a great fellowship. And I've been uh, excited to introduce him to another great fellowship. And that's the one he's at tonight. Um, he also serves as the chancellor of the San Diego Christian College, training people for ministry, uh, author of several books. Uh, you have the privilege, and I have the privilege, of hearing him and seeing him on Turning Point Television, hearing him on Turning Point Radio. Four children, happily married. 10 grandchildren. Would you please welcome Dr. David Jeremiah.
1: Thank you. Well, I am so glad to be here and see where my buddy Skip hangs out and with who he hangs out with. And I can tell you, you have great worship. I can, I, I'm a connoisseur of all that. What a great worship band you have. It's incredible. Yeah. And I, I have to honestly tell you, I did bring Dennis with me. So whatever he causes trouble here, I'm responsible for it. And, you know, Dennis and I go back a long way. When I came to San Diego back in 1981, Dennis was already there. I frankly hadn't heard of him before but I wasn't there very long before I was introduced to him. We used to have a thing when our college kids came back to campus on a Sunday night we would have this big deal up on the upper campus and what we at, then, at that time we called it the graveyard. I don't know why they called it that there were no graves up there but we had this big event. And so they told me Dennis was going to play. And I don't know if you've ever heard Dennis do this but he uh, that night he chose to play the William Tell Overture. Have you ever heard him do that? Put it um put it you know. The Lone Ranger. So I'm sitting there watching him play that, and all of a sudden, this is outdoors. Here comes a horse right across the <laughs> landscape. And I thought it was part of the act. I thought Dennis had hired the horse. No, no. Then I found out after I'd been there a short time that they had never had a drum or a guitar in this church to which I had come to be a pastor. Dr. LaHaye was there uh, for many years, and that was back in his more traditional days. He's he's recovered from all that now, but back in those days. So I decided, after I heard Dennis play up in the graveyard, I wanted him to play in my church on Sunday morning. And I said, Dennis, we've never had a guitar in this church, and there's a rule that you can't be on the platform unless you have on a suit and tie. Do you have one? He said no. I said, well, I want you to play on Sunday morning, but you've got to go buy a suit. You have never seen anything funnier than Dennis Agajanian in a suit. I think he wore it one time for me, and then he played. We got past that. And I got in a lot of trouble. In fact, the next day, believe it or not, when I went to my office, a guy was waiting in my parking space, standing there waiting to confront me over this evil guitar we had in the church the night before. So I invited Dennis to play the next week. And he's played lots of times ever since. And he's so much fun, as you know. And there's so many stories about Dennis I could tell you lots of. And one of my favorite stories is he was, uh, he was playing at the Thomas Road Baptist Church uh, some years ago uh, when Dr. Falwell was still alive. And he'd never been there before, and they were in the green room. And Dr. Falwell said, Dennis, he said, uh, here in the south, you, you can't walk out in our church with a hat on. You just can't. You've got to take that hat off. Dennis took it back off. He took his hat off and Falwell said, never mind, put it back on. We'll be all right. <laughs> anyway, when I told Dennis I was coming over here, I said, why don't you come with me? And uh, we called Skip and So we've had a great time. Thank you for inviting us. We're so grateful to be here. <laughs> Amen. I was telling uh, your pastor that I feel a sense of relief this weekend because I just finished 12 weeks of teaching on the Song of Solomon. Now, if you know anything about that book, you know if you're the preacher, it's like steering your ship through some pretty sticky places to try to stay out of trouble, not say anything that's going to embarrass you and make your congregation very uncomfortable. One of the blessings of the series, however, is people from my congregation have been sending me all these great stories. I've gotten some of the greatest stories. Now, my wife wouldn't let me tell some of them, but most of them are pretty good. And they start all the way back to the beginning of the dating process, and go all the way up to being old and married. And this is, uh, this is one of my favorite stories. This, little, this boy goes into the drugstore, and he tells the guy behind the counter, he said, I'd like to buy three boxes of candy. He said, I want one box that's a one-pound box. I want another box that's a three-pound box. And I want a five-pound box, three boxes of candy. I'd like them gift-wrapped, and I'll be back in an hour to pick them up. So he went away, and an hour later he came back, and the druggist said to him, Son, he said, I've done what you asked me to do, and I've got all this candy ready for you. But he said, This is really a strange request. Could I, could I ask you what this is all about? He said, Well, yeah, I'm glad to tell you. He said, I have a date tomorrow night with the prettiest girl in my school. I'm going to her house, I'm going to have dinner with her family. And I've decided if, if she uh, lets me hold her hand, I'm going to give her the one-pound box. If she lets me put my arm around her, I'm going to give her the three-pound box. And if she lets me kiss her goodnight, I'm going to give her the five-pound box. So the next day, he goes to his girlfriend's house for dinner. And as he sits down to dinner, the father says to him, Son, why don't you lead us in the blessing tonight? So he began to pray. And he prayed. And he prayed. And he prayed around the world. He prayed for every missionary he'd ever heard of, every pastor he'd ever heard of, every person's name he could hear of. Finally, when he'd exhausted everything he could think of, he said, Amen. Amen. And his girlfriend looked at him and she said, I didn't know you were so religious. He said, yeah, and I didn't know your dad was the druggist either. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things things about the Song of Solomon is so cool is it's not a a book that just... You know, Solomon and Shulamite actually had a fight in this book. And you can read the story about it and how they had to deal with it. And so we talked a lot about how you deal with marital discord. And, and one of the stories I got was so cool. This, this couple was going through the silent treatment. you know what that is? It's all you married, you don't talk to each other. You're mad, so you don't communicate. Well, they'd been in the silent treatment for a whole day. And finally, they're getting ready to go to bed. And this guy realizes he's got a five o'clock flight the next morning for a business trip. He doesn't want to break the silence, so he writes a note to his wife. And the note says, wake me up at 5 o'clock, I have to catch a flight, puts it on her nightstand. The next morning he wakes up at 9 a.m., and he is totally furious. He goes to find his wife, and on the way to find her, he sees a note on his nightstand, and it says, it's 5 o'clock, wake up. One more. <laughs> I love to hear you laugh. It's so much fun. This guy who lives down in Texas calls his son on the phone. He says, John, I know this is going to shock to death, just shock you to death. But he said, I've decided to divorce your mother. He said, Pop, you're going to do what? He said, I'm divorcing your mother. He said, You can't do that. I've never even heard you have a cross word with one another. He said, I'm telling you, son, I'm divorcing your mother, and I don't want to talk about it anymore. You can call your sister Barbara and tell her. I'm not going to tell her. And he hung up. Well, this guy is in total shock. He doesn't know what to do. So he calls his sister who lives in Michigan. He says, Barbara, I just got this weird phone call from our dad, and he's going to divorce our mother. She said, He will not. She picks up the phone and calls her dad, and she says, Dad, I just got off the phone with my brother, and he tells me what you're fixing to do, and I'm telling you, you will not do that. You will not do a single thing until tomorrow. We're coming down there. We'll get this straightened out. The old man hangs up the phone, turns to his wife. He said, Hey, the kids are coming tomorrow, and they're paying their own way. (laughs) 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 Whatever you have to do, right? Fortunately for me, all my kids and all my grandkids are right around close, and uh, we get a chance to be with them, and and we just feel so blessed because of that. Open your Bibles tonight, if you will, uh, to the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 5. This is a red-letter passage, as you know. This is the aftermath of the Beatitudes of our Lord. The 13th verse of the 5th chapter, and I'm reading, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There's an apocryphal story about a day in eternity when St. Peter greeted three new arrivals at the pearly gates. He began their heavenly orientation with a question the question was, what would you like most to hear your family and friends say about you at your funeral down on earth in a few days? And the first one replied, well, I'd be most gratified to hear them say that I lived a useful life as a doctor and as a family man. And the second replied, I would be happy to hear my friends say that I was an excellent school teacher, a wonderful wife and mother, and an asset to my community. And then the third one said, I would like to hear them say, look, he's moving. (laughs) Hmm. And if you love life, you would like to hear that too, wouldn't you? Because life is a gift from God and we cherish it and we preserve it and we work hard to enhance it. But spiritual life is like that too. And when you're alive spiritually, you want that life to be manifested. You want to see that life uh, displayed. And you, and you want to see God use that spiritual life to make a difference in the world. In this passage of Scripture from the book of Matthew, our Lord is speaking to us about what it means to have a relevant life. I grew up in the age when... There was a huge battle in the evangelical church over the gospel and the social gospel. My father was a pastor, and I remember hearing my dad talk as I was growing up about uh, the, the social gospel and what an enemy it was to the truth. And in case you don't know what the social gospel is, it's sort of the idea that by doing good works for God, you're preaching the gospel. By doing good things for God, you are doing the same as preaching the truth of the gospel. And of course, we know that's not true. Uh, There's no such thing as good works getting you to heaven. And so through all my life, I've seen these two things positioned one against the other, Uh, the the gospel and the social gospel. But there's a sense in which perhaps we have been over-inoculated with this truth in this way. While it is true that the Bible gives us the great commission, which is to go unto all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, the Bible also in the New Testament gives us the great commandment and the great commandment says we're to love our neighbor as ourselves and the great commandment is is equally critical to a follower of Christ as preaching the gospel. In my generation we've done the great commission quite well. We've done the great commandment not so well. One of the things that people worry about is if you if you get involved in the great commandment which is to love your neighbors people will misunderstand and they will they will They will think you've compromised the truth. But isn't the Bible wonderful to put all of this in the proper context so that that can't happen? For instance, every time there's a controversy that we might be called by our own curiosity to follow, the Word of God in the context of the passage preserves that from happening. Here's an illustration. We are not saved by works. Amen. Amen. Can't save. You can't get saved by doing good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, "For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself; it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." Amen? Amen. But you can't stop there. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So while we are not saved by good works, we are saved for good works. We are not saved by doing good things, but after we are saved, we are called to love our neighbor as ourself and to live out the Christian life and express the life of Christ in our lifestyle and in the way we deal with our neighbor. And someone says, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, your neighbor is anybody whose need you can meet. When he told the story, uh, when the story is told of the good Samaritan, that's the message. Uh, Our neighbor is that person that God has brought next to us for us to touch and for us to minister to. Now, Jesus taught that in this passage to which we have opened. Jesus taught us that as followers of Christ, we are to be two things. We're to be salt and light. He uses these two metaphors, which would have been very, very meaningful to the people of his day. They would have understood this incredibly well. They would have known uh, the, the purpose of these two metaphors. And tonight I want to talk with you about them. I want you to see them in the context of the scripture and in the context of your life. I want to tell you the story of what God has done in my life and in the life of our church as we've gotten a hold of these concepts and begun to understand that God has put the Shadow Mountain Community Church in a community. And our community is looking to us Not just for the gospel, but they look to us to see whether or not this that we claim to believe is real in our own lives. Perhaps the best way I could introduce this to you is to tell you that this message became virile to us back in 2003. If you are a student of the forest fires of California, you probably remember that at that particular time, there were some huge fires in Southern California. Those fires came right up to the edge of our campus. We thought uh, one Sunday night that the campus would be gone the next day. It took out homes of people who went to our church. It destroyed a a whole area up above our congregation called Crest. And here we were, this huge church in the middle of this community with burned out homes in a burned out community. And all of a sudden, God just dumped all of this right in our lap. I brought a friend with me tonight who's a pastor on our staff, David St. John, and he was in charge of the project to go after uh, the needs of the people. And the next thing I knew, we had a tent up in Crest. And the next thing I knew, we were gathering clothes for these people. And we went to the Walmart and we bought hundreds of, well, actually thousands of dollars worth of Walmart cards because most of the people who were burned out lost everything. We went in and helped them clean the slab off that was burnt and helped them carry their trash away. Then we gathered around the slab and joined hands with them and prayed for them. And God was, was gracious to us. The first person we ever did that with came to know Jesus Christ as her personal Savior as she saw the love of the people of God from the church down below. One man came to me and he said, He said, Dr. Jeremiah, I've driven by your church a hundred times, a hundred thousand times perhaps. And he said, every time I drove by that church, I thought, well, there's that rich church with all those rich Baptists. They probably don't even know they're here, but I don't think that anymore. I've discovered that that's a church full of loving people, and we have felt your love. That was the beginning of a new journey for us, and it continues even to this day. No, we haven't embraced the social gospel We've just embraced the gospel with all of the implications of the gospel that have been there from the beginning. Now, Jesus helps us with that when he tells us, first of all, that we are the salt of the earth. Notice verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, what could Jesus have possibly meant when he said to us that we are the salt of the earth? Let me suggest, first of all, that Jesus was saying to us that we have been called to prevent decay. One of the purposes of salt in the days when this was written was to preserve something from spoilage. The people of Jesus' day had never heard of a refrigerator. They didn't know anything about that. And so if they were going to preserve something to keep it from spoiling, they would salt it down, or they would soak it in a saline solution to keep whatever it was they were preserving from decaying. And the underlying implication of this, men and women, is very simple. The world tends toward decomposition. The world is actually rotting away in front of us, and we all know that. The world left to itself festers and putrefies and the germs of evil are everywhere present in the world in which you and I live. And without the salt that is provided by Christians, the decay is unabated and it is final. Our world is not the world that everybody thought it would be at the beginning of the century. I remember reading as a young pastor the thoughts of utopia that people were predicting would happen in the day about where we are right now. It is indeed pathetic to read some of the prophecies of the thinkers and the philosophers and the poets and the leaders toward the end of the last century. Wars were going to be abolished. Diseases were all going to be cured. Suffering was not only going to be ameliorized, but absolutely eradicated. It was going to be an amazing century, and most of the problems were going to be solved. For man had at last really begun to think. And the masses through education would cease giving themselves to drink and immorality and vice. And all the nations would be educated to think and to hold conferences instead of going to war. And the whole world would be very soon like paradise. That is not exaggerating what was written back then. That's what people believed and that's what they said. But I don't know anybody that believes that now, do you? (laughs) I don't know anybody that really, truly, who thinks, believe the world in which you and I live is getting better and better. We are almost at the point of what some people call the perfect storm. world is not getting better. The world is decaying because the law of thermodynamics is set in, and the world is decaying. And let me just suggest to you, men and women, that the church as salt functions as a retardant to decay and a preservative to the disintegrating world that we live in. And as followers of Christ, we have to be rubbed into the world so that it might be preserved. Our presence in culture ought to reduce crime, ought to restrain ethical corruption. It ought to promote honesty and elevate the moral atmosphere. Salty believers are the world's preservative. Now, one of the things that illustrates that for me is, as a student of prophecy, you all know what the great tribulation, you know what the tribulation period is, don't you? I know you've been taught that by your pastor. And you know when the tribulation period begins, don't you? After the rapture of the church. Now, it begins then because God Almighty has said it's going to begin then, and He will cause it to begin then. But the human factor in all that is this. Just before the tribulation period begins, all of the salt and the light of this universe is going to be evacuated to heaven and there will be nothing left on this earth to preserve evil from taking over. While we are present in this world today, Almighty God has called us to be champions of righteousness, even though sometimes it seems like it's a losing battle. Ladies and gentlemen, let me ask you what you think would happen If every Christian were removed from the equation with regard to the subject of abortion, it would be ipso facto in every area of life. There would be no question. There would be no discussion. Christians are always right in the middle of this debate, are we not? Always standing up for human life. Always standing in the way of new laws to try to make this more accessible to everyone. While we're killing all these babies, Christians are standing up against it. And somebody has got to stand up and say it's wrong. And Jesus said the whole purpose of preservation in the culture to the Christian. He's saying to believers, get into the world and be the preservative that you're you're called to be as the salt. You are the salt of the earth. Salt prevents decay. And then salt provides flavor. Oh, we all know that. The pleasures of the world are unsatisfying without Jesus Christ. They may pacify us for a while, but those who pursue them are soon left empty again. Isn't that true? When Jesus enters a person's life, he brings with him the flavor that creates the difference. When you find Jesus Christ as your Savior, all the things you thought were so cool that would make you happy, you discover now how empty they all are, and you find in Jesus Christ the most exciting thing that's ever happened in your life. As salt, Christians ought to add spice to life. One of the reasons I love to be with Dennis is he adds spice to life, doesn't he? He's fun to be with. I I don't get this idea that Christians are supposed to be sour-faced, long uh, rejections from a pickle factory. You know, I know a lot of Christians like that, don't you? They just seem so sad. And when I see people like that, I think, oh, I hope I don't catch what they have, you know. But the Bible says that as Christians, we're to bring flavor to life. We're to write the best books, produce the best movies, record the best music, design the best buildings. We ought to be the most generous and the most courteous and the hardest working employees and the best mechanics and artists and craftsmen and students. We are the salt of the earth. We are the flavor of life. And God knows that we need that today. Amen. I don't know what's going on here in Albuquerque, but where I live, everybody is so bummed out about the economy. My son last year decided to get a Hummer. (laughs) He's not humming about that anymore. I want you to know he's trying to figure out how to get rid of the thing. And what do you do when you got a Hummer? And you know what? What's going on right now is across the nation and even among people in the church, there's this spirit of pessimism that is starting to grow. And I decided this year I'm going to do everything I can to combat that. We have planned the very best, most exciting summer Bible conference we have ever had in the history of our church. Your pastor is one of our speakers. That's one of the reasons it's going to be exciting. And we've got all kinds of great music, and we've got all this. And somebody said, well, why are you doing that? Because I want to send a message to our people. We might be out of gas, but we're not out of joy. Amen? We're not out of joy. We're not out of happiness. And, And really, we need to start thinking creatively about this in our churches. Let me tell you what Dave Ramsey said on the radio the other day. He said, if gas goes to $5 a gallon, the average family, it will cost them about 45 to $50 more a month. And then he said, just give up a couple of Starbucks and your home free. You know, a lot of people think, oh my goodness, we're not going to have any gas. We won't be able to, go to the church. You know, the last thing you want to give up when you're going through difficult times is your fellowship with God's people. I do not believe this is going to destroy the church. I don't think it's going to hurt the church. I think it may bring the church together i got to tell you something. We had the best attendance on, on Memorial Day weekend we've had in years. And I think one of the reasons is nobody could afford to go anywhere. They just stayed home. <laughs> and I, I, I was telling Skip before the church service, I read in the paper on the way over here, that the American people traveled a billion miles less this year over the weekend than they did last year at the same time. So if they don't go any, guess what? they got to stay home and go to church, which is better for them anyway. Amen? Amen. <laughs> So what I'm saying is, if we're the salt of the earth, we will be preservatives against decay. We'll bring flavor wherever we go. And then thirdly, salt promotes thirst, doesn't it? I remember doing an event uh, down in uh, Raleigh-Durham at the RBC Center, and I've never done an event where I'm going to preach, we're going to have a service, but there was something in the contract said they got to sell all their products. And so here I'm preaching, and people are out there popping popcorn, you know, eating popcorn. And, and you know what happens when you eat popcorn, don't you? You got to go get something to drink. And then you know what happens after that. It's the most uproarious service I've ever had, people getting up and going. I mean, it, we had a great service. But you know, the reason they sell you popcorn at major events is they, they want you to go buy a great big cola. Because salt promotes thirst. Jesus made people thirsty for God. When anyone encountered Jesus, they became thirsty for God. And I want to ask you this question. Are we making people thirsty for God? That's part of our role as the salt of the earth. In the ancient times, during the Feast of the Tabernacles, in the city of Jerusalem, it was the custom for the priests to go to the pool of Siloam every day during the feast and to return bearing large containers of water that were then emptied upon the altar in the temple. This happened for seven days during the feast. And on the last day, the ceremony was repeated seven times. And on that day, during the Feast of Tabernacles, in the year that he attended, after all of this had happened... Jesus stood up in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he said this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus said, You've just made 14 trips to the pool of Siloam. All you got to do when you come to me is just make one. If you come to me, I'll give you the water that will satisfy you for the rest of your life. Hallelujah. Only Jesus can satisfy the great thirst of the human soul. Now listen, we're not called to do the work of Jesus. We can't satisfy the thirst of the world. But we are called to demonstrate the reality of the satisfied life. So that men and women will be thirsty for what you and I have. And that's a challenge to me. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst... For righteousness, for they shall be filled. You know, there's something about a Christian who's really walking with the Lord, who understands both the Great Commission and the Great Commandment that's really inviting. Isn't that true? I remember hearing a story about a a missionary by the name of Henry Morton Stanley. And he visited another missionary named David Livingston, who was from Central Africa. Henry Morton Stanley was not a Christian, though he was out representing his church. And after he had spent... A few days with David Livingston, he wrote these words. He said, if I had been with him any longer, I would have been compelled to be a Christian, and he never spoke a word to me about it at all. Did you know that the power of the Christian life is that great? It's like what Francis of Assisi once said. He said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. (laughs) Do we preach the gospel with our life? That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying we are called to be the salt of the earth. Let me give you another thing about salt. Salt prevents decay, provides flavor, it promotes thirst, and it permeates food. Did you know a little salt goes a long way? It sure does, doesn't it? I was on a cruise recently, and once once somebody in my group decided to play a little joke on me, and they took the pepper shaker and took the cover and loosened it all up, and I got my big steak for dinner, went to put some pepper on it, and the whole shaker of pepper came out on the steak. Now, I needed a little pepper, but I didn't need that much pepper. A little salt goes a long way. Just a touch of salt can change the taste of an entire dish. And the pungency of salt, as you know, is way out of proportion to its quantity. And so it is with the Christian in the world. Often I hear people say this, and maybe some of you have used this excuse tonight. Maybe you have said, but what can one person do? I'm just one person. I'm just a grain of sand. No, you're not. You're a grain of salt. And a little salt goes a long way. Just a dash of savor can make all the difference in the world. William Wilberforce was a man who most single-handedly brought the slavery emancipation bill in England. And he was living proof of this. I don't know if you've ever read about his life, but he was a very unattractive person. He was dwarfed by disease. When you looked at him, he did not appear to be a person who could make a difference in anything. However, one of the contemporaries who wrote about him said, I saw a shrimp mount the table and as i listened he grew and grew until the shrimp became a whale tiny elfish misshapen he was salt to the british society not only bringing preservation but enticement to jesus christ by his beautiful life a little salt makes its presence felt maybe you feel insignificant here tonight maybe you say sometimes i hear people say well i'm i'm just a homemaker what can i do I'm just a young person, what can I do? I just work in a foundry, what can I do? What you can do is you can be the grain of salt that God has called you to be where you are. You will be surprised the difference you will make if you will just let the Lord God shine through you and you become a salty Christian. Jesus tells us over and over again that little things really do count. Whosoever gives one of these little ones just a cup of cold water, he said, in the name of of a disciple, surely I say to you, he shall no means lose his reward. Let me tell you one of the most profound things I ever heard or ever read about this subject. Here it is. Please don't forget it if you forget everything else I say. Political philosopher Edmund Burke said that this way, Nobody makes a greater mistake than he who does nothing because he can do so little. One of the problems we have in our culture today, one of the reasons why we're not holding back the decay of our society is we all sit back and wait for the big people to do it. We sit back and wait for somebody in our church to do it, somebody in a position of power to do it. And the problem is we're all waiting for somebody to do something God has called all of us to do. Don't ever allow somebody to tell you because you can't do something great that what you do is not great. We are the salt of the earth. I could preach a lot more on that, but let me go to the next thought. We're not only the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. Notice what it says in verses 14 and 15. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Now, what are the qualities of light that define us as followers of Christ? First of all, Light destroys darkness. John one five says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not, literally it says, does not overcome it. Some scholars have actually explained that there is no such thing as darkness. That darkness is just the term that is used to describe the absence of light. That darkness isn't in essence a quality It is the absence of equality. So when light comes, there cannot be darkness anymore. And the Bible says that God has called you and me as light. And when we walk into what is before that, what seems to be dark, we take the darkness away. And, you know, I hear people today, again, with this pessimistic philosophy of where we are as a church. And they say things like, oh, it's never been darker than it is today. Well, praise God. Because the darker it is, the brighter the light shines. Amen? The darker it is, the more pronounced is the contrast between light and darkness. God has called us to be light, and light destroys darkness. Secondly, light detects evil. John three nineteen and 20 says, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Isn't that true? Why do you think all the crime happens after dark? It is darkness that covers evil. It is light that exposes it. And that's why if you're a follower of Christ, wherever you go, you're both going to be an encouragement to people and a condemnation to people. Did you know that? I have been going to the same barber in San Diego for 20 years seven years. Nobody else has cut my hair, but him. And he's not a believer. I've been witnessing for 27 years and he's still not a believer. I still go there. One of these days I'm going to get this guy, but he knows I'm a preacher and he has some rather unsavory characters who comes in, who come into his shop on occasion. I was in there uh, several years ago in his chair and there was a guy cutting hair next to him and this guy comes in, he sits down in the chair, and he starts to tell this story. And it's obviously going in the wrong direction. And he doesn't realize it, but I'm looking in the mirror, and I see my barber going. You know, he's trying to tell this guy, there's a reverend over here. you got to clean this act up. Now, why would he do that? What difference does it make? I'm just sitting in the chair getting my hair cut. You know why? Because he knew I was a follower of Christ. And I was a sense of condemnation in that barbershop. And he didn't want to embarrass himself or me or anybody else. He tried to deal with the issue. (laughs) You know what's going on today? When we see stuff that we don't like, we don't shine. We turn the light off and let it happen. Unfortunately, we have become so comfortable with the, the evil things of our generation that nobody confronts it anymore. I heard a story about a desert nomad who awakened hungry in the middle of the night. And he lit a candle, and he began eating the dates from a bowl beside his bed. He took a bite out of one and saw it had a worm in it. So he threw it out of the tent. He bit into the second date, found another worm, and threw it away. Reasoning that he wouldn't have any dates left to eat if he continued... He blew out the candle and ate all the dates. (laughs) You know, we laugh at that. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says men today prefer darkness because darkness doesn't make it necessary for them to deal with the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of rotten dates out there that are exposed, but they won't be exposed if we don't shine the light, if we aren't the people that God calls. And you don't have to be some overt nut going around condemning everything that's wrong. If you live for Jesus Christ in the environment to which God has called you, you will discover pretty quickly that people know you're different. You don't have to be peculiar in the sense of being odd. You just have to be godly and people will notice. And it is an interesting That when you're like that, they may be a bit rough on you and ridicule you in the process, but when they really need some important help, you're the person they come to see. I have a son uh, who is now uh, the National Scout for the Cleveland Browns. And uh, Daniel went to school at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. And when he first went there, he's about the only Christian on the team. And we had a long talk before he went. I said, Daniel, you just really need to kind of, the best you know how, declare yourself as soon as you get there. Don't let any, don't have to get up and preach, but just let everybody know who you are and what you do and what you're committed to. So he did. He did it in a gracious way by inviting a bunch of guys to a Bible study that he was going to hold on a Thursday night. So they immediately knew who he was. There was a lot of immorality uh, in that group and a lot of stuff that went on that was really what goes on on college campuses these days, and Daniel didn't participate in it. He took some ridicule. He had signs put on his locker and things like that, people making fun of him. But he didn't waver. And by the time he was finished, everybody on that team had come to respect him. And when they had an issue, they came to see Daniel. He prayed with guys. He led some of his buddies to Christ. He started a Bible study. I was back there last year, and this has been five years ago. The Bible study he started as a player at App State is still going on, and God is using it to change lives. You know what the difference was? He didn't have to be anybody different than he was. He's just a Christ follower, just a humble Christ follower, not a theologian, not a great great speaker, just a Christ follower who didn't do the things the rest of them did and didn't try to hold up his standard as being holy. But people can see the difference when you're the light. And let me tell you something, men and women. We are the only light there is. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, that's not theological. Oh, yes, it is. Listen, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world. Remember that? John 8. A little bit later on, he said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he said, a little while longer, and the light is with you. And then he said, you are the light. Jesus Christ shines in the world today by his reflection in the lives of his followers. Nobody's going to see Jesus if they don't see Jesus in us. Jesus isn't going to walk into this room in a physical sense, and people are going to say, oh, there's Jesus. But when they see us, and they see Jesus' life shining through us, then Jesus Christ becomes a presence wherever we go. Some of you who listen to our radio program know that some years ago, I went through a couple of pretty serious rounds of cancer. And uh, by the grace of God, I survived, and I'm thriving, and I'm now 10 years away from when that all happened. We're very thankful for that. When I got out of the stem cell transplant and kind of got my health back, my oncologist, who is a Orthodox Jew, said to me, he said, David, he said, I want you to do something. He said, my rabbi, as you know, had the same disease you have at the same time. You've both come through lymphoma cancer. And he said, I want to host a night at the Scripps Hospital, and we're going to talk about my cancer and my faith. I want you to talk about your cancer and your faith, and I want my rabbi to talk about his cancer and his faith. Now, I had met his rabbi, and i got to tell you what, he was the most, he was the smartest guy I had talked to in a long time. I didn't even understand some of his words. And he wasn't speaking in Hebrew. He was speaking in English, and I still didn't understand him. <laughs> and I knew he had a reputation for being a brilliant man. And here I am, I'm going to go and stand before all the people that come to this event. But I knew God had called me to do this, and I was going to do it. And I will never forget, on the way over there in the car... My wife and I were praying. I don't think I'd ever prayed this prayer before, but I I was crying out to the Lord, probably out of fear and intimidation. And I said, Lord Jesus, I don't know what's going to happen here tonight, but here's what I'd love. Just help me to be the presence of Jesus in this event. Just help me to be the presence of Jesus in this event. It was quite a night. I'll never forget. In fact, the next day, the, the gist of the whole thing was printed in the San Diego newspaper they asked who wanted to go first and I said I don't care he said well, why don't you go first I knew what he was doing so I just got up and I, I talked to the people about what Jesus Christ had done in my life and that I knew that this cancer that I had had been filtered through his hands and and that he'd been so gracious to me and that when you go through times like this God draws near to you and you feel his presence as never before so I told him about the presence of the Lord and That I was trusting God for my healing, but I was okay because I knew he was in control. And that was kind of the gist of what I said. Well, this intellectual rabbi got up and he poo-pooed everything I said at first. He said, I refuse to believe that there's a God in heaven who is the gigantic uh, marionette operator. Who stands up there and pulls strings, and this person gets sick and this person gets well? He said, "My God is not like that." He was a he was a disciple of Rabbi Kushner who believes that while God, uh, while God is loving, he's not powerful, and so he diminished God. And then I got up for my next speech, and once again I told him what Jesus had done for me. And he got up at the end, and I'll never forget this moment. Before he spoke, he said, all I can say to you is this. If I were going to be a Christian, I want to go to that man's church. He said that in front of the whole group. And after it was over, I looked, and there was a whole line of people lined up to talk to me, people who were cancer patients, some of the nurses and doctors. And I looked over in the corner where my rabbi friend was, and he was all alone. Friends, darkness doesn't attract anything. Darkness obliterates everything, but light draws people. And when I shared the presence of Jesus in my life that night, people were drawn not to me, but to the message of hope that Jesus Christ brings in a crisis like that. So God has called us to be light. Light destroys darkness, and it detects evil, and it discovers good. But he who does good, the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, says John chapter 3. And light defines Christianity. Did you know that Ephesians 5.8 says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. The Bible says that as Christians, we are light. We don't bring light. We don't shine light. We are light. And our very beings are light in the darkness. Light is the illustration of something that does what it does by being what it is. We don't have to try to be light. We are light. If we know Jesus Christ, the light of the world is living within us, and we shine that light out. Let me tell you what Gideon teaches us. The light is seen better when the vessel is broken. and When you go through brokenness, don't you know the light shines through in such a marvelous way? The first sign of being a relevant Christian is that we are salt, that we're making a difference, that people see the uniqueness of who we are. That's kind of the negative side of Christianity. positive side is we are the light of the world. And men and women, I want to tell you, the world today is looking for light. They've tried everything else. They've burned themselves out on every false substitute in they don't understand that God has created us all with a God-shaped vacuum in our heart. Nothing will work until Jesus Christ is at home in that place. You may be here tonight without Jesus Christ, and you, don't, you wonder why there's this yearning and unhappiness and, and this, this sense of being incomplete because you were designed to be incomplete without Jesus Christ. You will never be all that you dreamed of being until Jesus Christ is at home in your heart. And men and women, the world today is just looking for people who will be the light of the world to them. A few years ago, a group of salesmen went to a regional convention in Chicago. They had assured their wives that they would be home in plenty of time for Friday night's dinner. In their rush, with tickets and briefcases, One of these salesmen, running through the airport, inadvertently kicked over a table which held a display of apples. And apples flew everywhere. Without stopping or looking back, they all managed to reach the plane in time for their nearly missed boarding. All but one of them got on the plane. The one who didn't get on the plane paused, took a deep breath, got in touch with his heart, and experienced a sense of compassion for the girl whose apple stand had been overturned. He told his buddies to go on without him. He waved goodbye, told one of them to call his wife when he got home and explained to her that he was taking the next flight. And he returned down the terminal jetway to where the apples were still all over the terminal floor. A 16 year old girl who was in charge of the stand, he discovered immediately was totally blind and she was softly crying and tears running down her cheeks in frustration. At the same time, she was helplessly groping on the floor for the spilled apples, and the whole crowd was just walking by her, not even paying any attention, as if she did not exist. No one stopped. No one seemed to care. And the remorseful salesman, who realized what he had done, knelt on the floor with her, gathered up all the apples, put them back on the table, helped reorganize the display, And as he was doing this, he noticed that some of the apples had been bruised, and he set them aside in another basket. When he had finished, he took out his wallet and he said to the girl, please take this $40 for the damage we did. Are you okay? And she nodded through her tears. He continued on and said, I hope we didn't totally destroy your day. I hope you're going to be okay. He started to walk away. The bewildered blind girl called out to him and she said, Mister? Mister? He turned to look into her blind eyes. She said, Are you Jesus? Are you Jesus? He stopped and slowly made his way to catch the next flight, but that question would never go away. Are you Jesus? Let me ask you. Are you Jesus? To somebody you are. Oh, not Jesus in the sense of the Son of God. You're the representation of Jesus. I have to honestly tell you, I've tried to be a good person and a caring and compassionate person. Nobody's ever asked me, are you Jesus? But somewhere along the way, as we live out our faith, as we're the salt and the light that we've been called to be by our Savior, people are going to look to us and they're going to see our Savior in us. And they're going to be drawn to him. They won't see him when we go to church. They won't see him when we stand and sing the hymns. We won't see them necessarily even when we talk about what we think and what we believe. They will see him as we act as Jesus acted. And we make a difference in their life. And I want to ask you tonight to seriously consider this passage of scripture. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And tonight, if you slipped into this room and you don't know Jesus, if you've never accepted him as your personal Savior, you'll never find a better time than tonight to give him your life. He loves you. He came to this earth to purchase your redemption. He won't force his way into your life, but he stands with his arms wide open. And he is saying to you, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you know him tonight? Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, what a wonderful thing it is to stand with the holy book and to talk about our Savior. How we love you tonight. How we thank you for coming to this dark world to bring light and hope And joy. Thank you, Lord God, that you sent Jesus to be our Savior. When we we were without strength, he came. When there was nothing we could do to merit our salvation, he came. And he gave himself for us. Lord God, some of us were hard to win. Some of us went a long time trying to do it our way till we finally realized how futile it was. And we gave up and gave in to the Lord. Father, tonight I would pray that there would be someone here tonight who does, who does tonight what they're going to be glad they've done when they stand before you someday. And will come to receive you as their Savior and accept you as their Lord. Lord God, is our hearts are open towards you, We ask you to look down into our hearts and examine us and see whether we're in the faith. And if there's someone here tonight that doesn't know you, help them, Lord God, to to pray this prayer to invite you into their life. Wherever you are tonight in this room, if you've never accepted Christ, let me ask you to do this. Just simply pray this prayer after me. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I I can't live a perfect life. Lord God, I'm tired of trying to do this life by myself. I know that you believe in me, and tonight, Lord God, I want to believe in you. I trust you, and I believe that you did what you said you would do when you sent Jesus to the cross. And, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me on the cross and paid the penalty of my sin. And I invite you to come and be my Savior tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for hearing my prayer. I will seek from this moment on to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And I pray this...